Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So good evening, everybody. Um, hope you can hear me. Uh, welcome. On behalf of the philosophy program and the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Kasim Kassam. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick. Uh, I'm Maddie Silverstein. I'm an associate professor in the philosophy program. So Professor Kassam is here uh, as our distinguished philosopher in residence. Uh, this is an initiative we started several years ago where we invite a distinguished senior philosopher to come to NYU Abu Dhabi for a week to share new and ongoing research, to meet some of our students, to interact with faculty, to sit in on classes, and to, uh, to deliver a public lecture, which is what we're doing tonight. Uh, of course, we had to put the initiative on hold during the COVID-19 pandemic. We are thrilled to be able to resume it, and even more thrilled that Professor Kassam is uh, the person who is resuming it. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll get started. Uh, he did his undergraduate and graduate work in philosophy at the University of Oxford. Uh, where he then taught for many years, I think 18 years, uh, before moving to University College London and uh, University of Cambridge, and then settling uh, at the University of Warwick, where he's been for several years. Uh, I got to know him briefly when he was giving lectures, when he was at Oxford and I was a student there, and he gave uh, what remains some of the most riveting and philosophically intense lectures uh, I've ever heard. Um, so they made a big impression on me. He has written on a just vast array of subjects. He's published books on the nature of the self and its relation to the world, on the nature of perception, on what makes a good or bad thinker. He's written a book about epistemic vices. He's written a book about conspiracy theories and has ongoing work on, ex on extremism and the nature of terrorism. Uh, so tonight's talk, of course, is a philosophical analysis of extremism, which I'm really looking forward to. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kasim Kassam. All right, so first of all, thanks for that very kind uh, introduction. Uh, and it's, a, it's an honor to be invited to be here as the distinguished philosopher in residence. So I want to take you back to uh, last year. Um, so this is, a, this is a story about the UK, but I mean, it'll maybe resonate with all of you. So there's an organization in the UK called Extinction Rebellion, XR. Uh, XR is, an, is a nonviolent climate change activist organization that has organizes protests against um, organizations which it thinks are contributing to climate change. The Guardian newspaper reported last year that British counter-terrorism police had labeled XR an extremist organization and therefore potentially of a subject of interest to counter-terrorism authorities. Uh, when this story came out of The Guardian, XR responded by saying, we're not the extremists, you're the extremists. Now, at this point, it, it, it was starting to sound like an argument in a kind of school playground, right? I'm not an extremist, you are. No, you are. Right? So, so the question that that raised is actually, is this label extremist, is it a useful label? Or is it just a term of abuse that different parties to an argument use to delegitimize the other side. Um, 
if it's a serious label, if it's a meaningful label that's useful for analytical purposes, maybe for legal purposes, then we need a proper understanding of what this thing is that people call extremism. So that's really the purpose of this lecture, to kind of cast some light on this actually rather fundamental question. So here are the three questions that I'm going to address in this lecture. I mean, the first question is the obvious one. What is extremism? I mean, what are we talking about when we talk about extremism? Um, is it just a term of abuse, or uh, does it have some real content? And the, the, the other question I'm going to address, in a way, is the most controversial question, is what's wrong with extremism anyway? Now, that is a very disturbing question to ask, I mean, it might seem obvious to all of you that there's something wrong with extremism. But actually, over the, over the years, a number of actually rather surprising people have tried to make the case for what they call extremism. And I think it's important that we consider what this case is, and if we're not convinced by their arguments, actually have an answer to it. Um, so here are three examples of apologists for extremism. I mean, the first is, is actually a fictional example. It's from one of the truly great American novels by Philip Roth, and it's called American Pastoral. One of the characters in American Pastoral is a young woman who gets involved in terrorist activities, protesting against America's involvement in the Vietnam War. And there's a very uh, brilliant scene where she's arguing with her father. Her father can't understand what on earth she's playing at, why she got involved with these extremists. And this is, her, this is her answer. Another example is um, Barry Goldwater. You probably don't know who Barry Goldwater is, but he was the Republican candidate for the 1964 presidential election, and actually a very conservative figure. And in a speech, Barry Goldwater said this, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. Very striking claim from a, from a conservative politician. And in fact, that thing that Goldwater said is very similar to something that Martin Luther King Jr. also said at around the same time, and I'll come back to that later on. And the last uh, quotation I have is from, a, from a, a British, a very actually prominent British journalist called George Monbiot. Uh, and he wrote this in The Guardian um, about e Extinction Rebellion and the whole climate change dispute, where he said, if defending life on Earth is extremist, we must own that label. Very striking claim. Okay, so, so we need to have something to say about these sorts of claim. Um, okay, so let me just start off with the, 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 the question, what is an extremist? So, Here's one way of thinking about it. Um, one kind of extremism is what I call methods extremism. Okay, so methods extremists are basically individuals or organizations or even states that use extreme methods in pursuit of their political objectives. Okay, so this only talks about the methods. It doesn't say anything about the objectives. Okay, obvious next question, what do you mean by an extreme method? And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. I mean, the obvious thought is extreme methods is something to do with violence, right? But the connection between those two things needs to be explored a bit further. A second kind of extremism, which I'm going to call ideological extremism, simply says 
An extremist in this sense is simply someone who has or subscribes to an extremist ideology. And then you have to explain what you mean by an extremist ideology. So that's the second type of extremism. So this is really about the extremists' political objectives rather than the methods that they use to achieve their objectives. And the third type of extremism, which I think in some ways is the most interesting, is what I call psychological extremism. So psychological extremists are individuals who have what I call an extremist mindset, or you might think of it as an extremist psychology. Now, of course, in practice, many of the people that we identify as extremists are extremists in all three senses. But nevertheless, I think that it's helpful to distinguish between these three varieties of extremism and to think about how extremism in these three senses um, uh, fits together as a single phenomenon. Okay, so, so just keep in mind throughout this lecture this basic tripartite distinction. Methods, ideological, psychological. That's the basic taxonomy that I'm offering you. Okay, so first of all, let's look in a bit more detail at methods extremism. Right, so a very natural thought is that extreme methods are just violent methods. Right, so, so any organization or individual that uses violence in pursuit of its political objectives is thereby a political methods extremist. Right, and violence means something like physical force, which can take, of course, the, for, the form of you know, bombs or whatever else. I just want to make an observation about that. I, I think on the face of it, there are examples of extreme methods that have not, in fact, been violent. Um, so you think about a terrorist organization called the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. So there was a point in the 1980s where the IRA was campaigning for political status for its prisoners. So IRA prisoners were treated as ordinary criminals. They wanted political status. So these prisoners went on hunger strike, and 10 of them died. Okay, one of them did not take any food for 66 days and died. Well, that's a pretty extreme method right, of, of uh, achieving or trying to achieve a political objective. I mean, it's extreme in the sense that very few of us could do it. I couldn't do it. 66 days of not eating. Right? And extreme also in the sense that it involved the, the complete destruction of his physical body. I mean, his body basically just imploded over the course of these 66 days. So that's a nonviolent but nevertheless extreme method. On the other side, and this is, this is a kind of more controversial and a more delicate issue, it seems to me that there are circumstances in which extreme methods are used, but where the sorry, violent methods are used, but where the use of violence does not in and of itself make you an extremist. And I want to give you an example of this. So go back to apartheid era South Africa. Okay, so during apartheid, South Africa was basically divided along racial lines where you had a white minority government that uh, had, an, had instituted uh, racial discrimination on a huge scale. Uh, the organization that was fighting against apartheid was the African National Congress, the ANC, which was led by Nelson Mandela. Now, the ANC certainly did use violence against the apartheid regime. Did that make them methods extremists? I want to say not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, so the reason I want to say that is this. 
The question whether the use of a particular method, even if that method is violence, the question whether that makes you an extremist or not depends upon a whole lot of other contextual factors. Right? So if all you know is that somebody or some organization has used violence in pursuit of a political objective, that does not tell you whether their method's extremists or not. It depends upon a whole lot of other factors. So here are some factors which are relevant. Now, the first factor, of course, is, well, was violence employed in a just cause or not? I talked about the ANC. Think about French resistance fighters who use violence against the, their Nazi occupiers uh, in the Second World War. Think about some Ukrainians right now who may be using violence against the Russian army. I think we're less inclined to describe these people as extremists or as methods extremists, partly because of the thought that the, their cause was just. Now, of course, you might be thinking, yeah, but doesn't that make it all kind of subjective? Well, you, what you think is a just cause is not what I think is a just cause. But I actually think that in discussing this topic, you cannot get away from issues of normativity. I mean, whether you use this label and when you, you use this label is going to be a reflection of your own con uh, conception of what is just and what is unjust. Okay, so in the ANC case, the fact that they were fighting against apartheid, a, a manifestly unjust system of government, was relevant to the question whether they were methods extremists or not. Of course, there's also the question, what was the nature of the violence that was used? I mean, do they attack shopping malls or do they attack soldiers of the other side? There's also the question of necessity. Methods extremists will use violence in pursuit of their political objectives even when there's an alternative. Okay, but when there's no alternative, when there's genuinely no alternative to violence, that also bears on the question whether um, the use of violence makes you a methods extremist or not. There's also the question, was the violence proportionate? I mean, we, we, we do have the idea that there's that, that you know, sometimes, even if you're fighting for a just cause, and even if there's no alternative to violence, the violence that you use is disproportionate. And that, again, would make you um, a methods extremist. So I won't go through this entire list, but the thought, the thought I think, is a very simple and a very intuitive one, that, that when you are assessing violence as a tool of politics, which, of course, it has always been throughout human history, and you're deciding whether the use of this tool is legitimate, the use of this tool makes you an extremist or not, you need to look at at least these questions. Maybe there are other questions too, but you need to consider at least these questions as relevant for the issue of extremism. So what I think of as the archetypal violent methods extremist is someone who uses unnecessary and or disproportionate violence they don't use it as a last resort. They very often use it as a first resort. And they use it in pursuit of an unjust but hopeless cause and against illegitimate targets. If all of that is true of you, you are a methods extremist. You are the archetypal methods extremist. Now, someone who I think is a, was an archetypal methods extremist was Osama bin Laden. So here's a quotation that brings out certain aspects of his extremism. I mean, I think this is an absurd series of claims that he makes, right? But this is what he, this is what he actually said. He's talking about the Americans here. 
Um, as they kill us, without a doubt, we have to kill them until we obtain a balance in terror. He then went, went on to argue that civilians are legitimate targets because they are not exonerated from responsibility for the actions of their government. Um, I mean, so no real distinction between legitimate and illegitimate targets. He thought everyone was a legitimate target. I mean, it's a bizarre argument, right? Because by his argument, even if you voted against um, the government, that would still make you responsible for the government's actions. Right? So it's a manifestly crazy idea. And the last thing is particularly telling, where he says, so we kill their innocence. This is valid both logically and religiously. Well, I would argue that it's valid neither logically nor religiously. Um, but that's it. there you see what a real extremist sounds like. There you see what a real methods extremist sounds like. But now you compare him with Nelson Mandela. Now, if you haven't read it, I, I would urge you to read Mandela's book, The Long Walk to Freedom. And there's one particular chapter in the book, chapter 17, where Mandela is explaining how it came about that the African National Congress eventually resorted to violence against apartheid. And his argument is, we really seriously tried nonviolent methods. We were, we were very conscious of the fact that in India, Mahatma Gandhi had used nonviolence against the British, and it had proved very effective. So we thought that we could try that. But what we discovered when we tried that against the apartheid regime is that it just didn't work. Right? So for us, the ANC, the choice was, either the armed struggle, or you just live with apartheid for all time. Okay, so presented with that choice, Mandela's argument was, we had to use violence because violence was the only method that would destroy apartheid. Now, it's actually a very interesting question whether that claim is true or not. I mean, you might argue that actually what destroyed apartheid was economic sanctions, not violence. Now, if that's true, then that would be a, a real ground for criticizing Mandela. I think also some of the targets that were attacked by the ANC were deeply problematic. There's one notorious case where they planted a bomb on a, on a street outside the headquarters of the South African Air Force, and uh, they ended up killing lots of civilians on their lunch break and very few Air Force personnel. I mean, that was completely unacceptable, right? even by Mandela's own standards. So I'm not uh, subscribing to the you know, sanctification of Mandela. I mean, I think there are serious questions about his arguments, but at least, unlike bin Laden, he's presenting what I think we can all recognize as a reasonable argument in support of the use of violence. Okay, now I want to move on to the second conception of extremism, um, the ideological conception. Now, supposing you think of ideologies you know, socialism, fascism, communism, capitalism, liberalism, supposing you think of them as organized on a spectrum running from left to right, okay, then the simple view is that an extremist ideology is just an ideology that's either on the extreme left or on the extreme right. This was a traditional view. Okay, so you think of, you think of um, just as um, physical space has dimensions, so ideological space has dimensions. There's the left to right dimension. Unfortunately, that story is way, way, way too simple. Okay, it's way too simple because there are intuitively, intuitively extremist ideologies that are very, very hard to place on the extreme left or the extreme right. I mean, Bin Laden's ideology is an interesting example. Right? Was that an extreme left ideology or an extreme right ideology? Well, I mean, I've heard arguments 
for saying that it is, it's an extreme right ideology, but it, it's not obvious that it's helpful to think of his ideology in terms of left and right. I mean, even fascism, which is traditionally classified as an extreme right ideology, of course, fascists say themselves that, well, w what we're offering you is a third way. It's neither left nor right. So I don't think this is necessarily going to be helpful. However, there are other dimensions of ideological space. You don't just classify ideologies according to, to whether they're on the left or on the right. You can also classify ideologies in other ways. So one very in, important question is, what is this ideology's view of violence? So some ideologies are much more pro-violence than others. Right? So one reason for placing fascism on the extreme end of the pro-violence spectrum is that fascists traditionally uh, have this almost visceral love of violence. You know, they think of violence as some kind of great purifying force in society. Right? So, so they are extremists on the pro-violence spectrum. And right? the other extreme would be pacifists. Okay, so you might think, well, do I really want to say that pacifists are extremists? Well, yes, on this spectrum, they are. Right? You can also classify ideologies according to how authoritarian they are. So, so you can have uh, uh, extreme left and extreme right ideologies as both being at the same end of the authoritarianism spectrum because they're both authoritarian ideologies, and no doubt there are many others. Okay, now, of course, there are a, lot, a whole lot of further questions that uh, one can discuss, which I'm not going to, uh, uh, not going to talk about for, for, for very long, but just to say that when it comes to locating a particular ideology on a spectrum, um, there are all sorts of issues of relativity that arise. Okay, so you might say, well, there are ideologies that, you know, 200 years ago would have been regarded as extremist ideologies, but now we don't regard them as such. Uh, there's also an element of geographical or cultural relativity. I mean, think about America, right? Supposing you go to America today and you're trying to work out someone's politics. You're trying to work out, are they on the left or are they on the right? Well, among the questions I think you would ask them is, uh, would be, what's your attitude to gun control? You would ask them the question, what's your attitude to abortion? These are defining issues in the American political context for classifying people as being on the left or on the right. If you went to the UK, and you were trying to classify people as being on the left or on the right, you just wouldn't ask them, what's your review of gun control? I mean, that would just be an absurd question to ask, right? Because there's no, I mean, there's basically nobody in the UK who thinks that guns should be unregulated, right? And equally, their atti people's attitudes to abortion is just not a defining left or right issue. Uh, in the UK, there would be other ways of determining people's political location. Um, so, so there are all these different forms of, of relativity. So it's not an absolute matter whether someone's an ideological extremist or not. But at a given time, in a given context, then, of course, you can say, in, in, in many cases, whether someone is an ideological extremist or not, once you've specified which, which spectrum you're talking about. OK, so, so far, I've, 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 I've told you about methods extremism, and I've told you about um, ideological extremism. And of course, I'm not suggesting that these are completely distinct. So many ideological extremists are pro-violence. So they're also going to be methods extremists. So there's a connection, not surprisingly, between your ideology and the methods that you use in pursuit of your ideological objectives. Um, an interesting, actually a very interesting case, I think, is whether you can ha you can, your ideology can be non-extremist 
but you still use extreme methods in pursuit of your ideological objectives? I mean, that I think is a very interesting question. Okay, so if you think about um, the Bush administration uh, in the early 2000s, okay, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to classify their ideology as extremist. I mean, certainly on the right, but it's not, it wasn't, I, I don't think, an extremist ideology. But did they endorse the use of violence in pursuit of their polit political objectives? They certainly did, right? Because one of their polit political objectives was regime change in Iraq. How did they achieve that? Through the use of violence. Okay, so that's an example of someone who's not actually an, an obvious candidate for an ideological extremist, nevertheless being, in, in a way, a methods extremist. Okay, so there, 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 are, there are quite kind of complicated questions about the relationship between these two forms of extremism, but I don't want to get bogged down with that. I now want to talk about what I'm really interested in, which is psychological extremism. So what I've said so far is that um, uh, a psychological extremist is someone who has an extremist mindset. Now, the thought that I have here really goes back a, quite, quite a long way. There's a, there's a very important book published in the 1950s by a guy called Eric Hoffer. Now, Hoffer is really interested in, in, in what he calls fanaticism rather than extremism. But quite a lot of what he says about fanaticism is also true of extremism. So the main point that Hoffer wants to make is that the real distinction in politics, the distinction that really counts, is the distinction between a fanatic and a moderate, not the distinction between different fanatics. Right, so he thought that you, know, you can be a fanatic of the left and a fanatic of the right. You may be ideologically opposed, but in a certain way, you have a lot in common. You're both true believers in your ideology. Right? And, and the person who's really different from you is not a fanatic who's a fanatic for something else. The person who's really different from you is someone who Hoffa calls a moderate. Okay, so, so, so the thought is that, is that maybe when we think about extremism in psychological terms, so we're now ignoring people's specific ideologies, but we're just thinking about their, their psychologies or we're thinking about their mindsets. Maybe there's such, such, such a thing as the extremist mindset. Now, I think, I think there is, and I think it's a helpful idea. And, I, uh, and one thing that I try to do uh, in my own work is to spell out the different elements of the extremist mindset. OK, so when I talk about a mindset, and I think we all have a mindset in this sense, one thing that helps to constitute your mindset are your preoccupations. Right? What, are the, what are the issues that are really on your mind? What are you preoccupied with? What are your obsessions, even? So one of the claims I want to make is that extremists of all varieties have certain characteristic preoccupations which, it, which, which constitutes their extremist mindset. So one kind of extremist preoccupation, I think, is, is what I call the purity preoccupation. Extremists are preoccupied by, they are obsessed with purity. It can be religious purity, it can be racial purity, or it can be ideological purity. So the classic example, the Nazis, right? So the Nazis were absolutely obsessed with racial purity. This was a major part of Nazi ideology. They had racial purity laws. Um, and, and, and this was integral to their way of thinking. So, so there you have a really important example of this purity preoccupation. But of course, there can be a preoccupation with purity of other forms. 
you can have, you can be an ideolo you can be an, an ideological um, obsess uh, uh, obsessive, right? Um, um, or, or, or even uh, uh, you can be preoccupied with religious purity, preoccupied with practicing the mo the purest, most un unadulterated form of your religion. And I think, I mean, ISIS clearly has something like this purity preoccupation, right? And that's why, um, I mean, there's a nice quotation here from an uh, authoritative study of ISIS where he describes their project of purifying the Islamic lands of all alien and infidel influences. So the word purifying is very important in that formulation. I think another preoccupation that is really characteristic, characteristic of extremists is victimhood. Extremists always think they're the victims. Right? And what they think is that they do what they do because they're fighting back against their victimization. Not only do they think about themselves as victims, they think of themselves as humiliated. This is a very deep part of extremism. I mean, a, a, a rather amusing example of this. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of silly, but in a way not silly example are so-called incel extremists in America today. Okay, so incels, these are involuntarily celibate men who think that they are victims of persecution by women. Right? Why do they think women are persecuting them? Because they think good-looking women refuse to go to bed with them. And this is unjust. They are being persecuted. And there are actual incel terrorists, right? I mean, incels have carried out acts of terrorism. In, in pursuit, in support of this objective. So this is a classic example of a preoccupation with victimhood. Now, of course, sometimes people really are victims, right? Uh, I mean, the ANC would have been perfectly entitled to be preoccupied with their victimhood because they were victims of apartheid. But I think we talk about an extremist mindset when someone is preoccupied with fantasies of persecution. Right? And that's what you see in the incel. Um, example. Again, what you think is a fantasy and what you think is real, well, that's a judgment. It's a judgment call. Right? It seems to me to be completely obvious that, that, that the incels' view of their persecution is absurd, right? But, but that's, that's my view, right? And I would defend it. But I'm, I don't suppose that, that the incels would agree with me about that question. Okay, so preoccupations. Okay, so if, you, if you're trying to think about the extremist mindset, think of what the extremist is preoccupied by or preoccupied with. Second element of the extremist mindset, I think there are certain attitudes or a cluster of attitudes that I think is characteristic of the extremist mindset. So extremists, many of them are in favor of violence, pro-violence. They are against compromise. This is a very fundamental part of the extremist mindset, hostility to compromise, which I'll talk about a bit in a, in a minute. I mean, something else that I think is very Characteristic, characteristic of extremism is that they just don't care about the consequences of their actions. Right? So they'll plant a bomb in a public place, people will get killed, and their attitude is, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Right? That's what I mean by indifference to the consequences of what you do. They won't really take ownership of the death and destruction that they cause. And of course, intolerance authoritarianism and anti-pluralism are all part of this extremist mindset. Now, I, I want to just focus on the issue of compromise, which, is, which I think is a very delicate issue. One thing that people sometimes say is, look, I don't really know what you think is the problem with being uncompromising, because surely we admire people who are principled, 
And if you have principles, if you have strong principles, you are a, a person of principle, then that means that you won't compromise. Being principled means, be, means being uncompromising. So how can you say that hostility to compromise is part of the extremist mindset when it's actually something that we admire? To the extent that we admire people of principle, we admire people for not being compromising. Now, I think a very interesting discussion of this um, subject is, is, is to be found in, I mean, it, it, I think it's the sort of decisive discussion in a book by uh, Avishai Margalit. And this is what he says, and I think this is a very compelling framework for thinking about this topic. So he says, political compromises, especially for the sake of peace, are a good thing. That seems right to me. However, the compromises that are to be avoided are what he calls rotten compromises. And a rotten compromise is an agreement to establish or maintain an inhuman regime. So if the ANC had compromised with the apartheid regime, that, by Margalit's definition, that would have been a rotten compromise. Again, this is all completely normative, right? You're, you're building in a conception of what counts as, as, as um, an inhuman regime. Okay, so here's the distinction between being principled and being uncompromising. Being principled, I want to say, does not require you to be hostile to compromise per se. A person of principle can be willing to compromise. What being principle means is that you don't make rotten compromises. That's what being principle means. So, so, so I think it's just a mistake to identify being a person of principle with being a person who is just not willing to compromise at all. And so here's a kind of nice characterization then of, of extremism. Uh, 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 so I want to say that extremism is the disposition to view any compromise as a rotten compromise. Uh, that's what makes you an extremist. So, so your instant reaction to any suggested compromise is to say, it's a rotten compromise. Another way that extremists think about compromise is that they think of compromise as a, as a capitulation, as a betrayal. And of course, the reason that extremists have the view that they have of compromise is that they also think of compromise as polluting. Right, so go back to the purity preoccupation. So, so if you think you've got, you know, you're, you're, you're defending the pure faith or the pure whatever it is that you're defending, and somebody says to you, you need to compromise, right, you're going to think, I'm not going to compromise because it's, it's impure to compromise. It's, 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 a, it's polluting the purity that I care about. Okay, so that's another part of the extremist uh, mindset. And so here's a, a very colorful way that uh, Margalit puts it, compromise is part and parcel of the shitty world. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it just is, right? And this is something that extremists find very difficult to accept. Uh, they, they, they sort of have this fantasy of the world as, as a world in which you can live as a serious, human being without compromising, <laughs> even when the compromise is a compromise for peace. That is what makes a person an extremist. Okay, so, 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 so far I've given you two elements of the extremist mindset. I've given you a, a couple of extremist preoccupations and I've given you a whole lot of extremist attitudes. I think there's also a kind of emotional component of the extremist mindset. 
Extremists are characteristically motivated by certain violent passions or emotions. So I think that you know, when you think about political extremists, you, you're really thinking about people who are, in fact, primarily motivated by emotions like anger, resentment, humiliation, and above all, self-pity. I think extremists are very self-pitying. Right? So, um, so, so, so that, that's what I mean when I talk about the emotional component of extremism. I mean, one question that when you, when you listen to extremists being interviewed on TV, one question that always arises in my mind is, why are they so angry? What, what, <laughs> what is it with them? Right? Why are they so intemperate in their pronouncements and in their views? Okay, so that's the um, emotional component. And lastly, I want to talk about particular ways of thinking that I associate with extremism. Okay, so extremists are rather prone to what I call apocalyptic thinking. They are rather prone to being obsessed with you know, the supposed end of the world, which is, which is, which is coming anytime soon. Um, they also, in another kind of way, are, are actually quite utopian. Right? What, they, what extremists think is that, is that um, they are, through the use of violence, are going to bring about some kind of utopia. So this, again, is part of the extremist um, mindset. Again, going back to the previous quotation, I mean, they just don't accept that the world is a difficult, complicated place in which we all have to compromise. You're not going to get your own way, and you're particularly not going to create utopia by, 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 by destroying stuff. Um, and another element of the extremist mindset is that I think pretty much all forms of extremism go in for conspiracy thinking. It's very striking how, how many political extremists are also conspiracy theorists. Um, and that, I think, is part of the extremist mindset. OK, so I've given you a flavor of what I mean by the extremist mindset. So if you're, thinking of, if, I mean, if you're interested in this topic and you're thinking about it yourself, you might want to think about how, what you think is the extremist mindset. Have I missed anything out? Is there anything that's on my list that shouldn't be on my list? Okay, so that's, I think, it's an open question. It's an open question. And I'm not, arrived, I'm not making these claims just on the basis of pure philosophical reflection. I think these claims are actually, can be supported by studying actual extremists. You need to actually look at, look at the pronouncements of actual extremists, and you'll see that all of this stuff is very evident in their, um, in their pronouncements. So I started out with the question, is, extremist something real? is extremism something real? Is it just a term of abuse, or is it, is, it, is it an analytically useful label? So I want to say now, yes, it is something real, actually. Some ideologies really are extremist. Right? There are ideologies, for example, that are extremely pro-violent or extremely anti-violent. So there are, in that, in that sense, extremist ideologies. There are ideologies of the extreme left and ideologies of the extreme right. So despite the element of relativity that I acknowledged earlier on, I think that in a given context, it makes perfect sense to say, yes, extremism of the ideological variety is a real thing. What about methods extremism? Is that a real thing? Well, of course it's a real thing, right? I mean, of course there are countless examples throughout history of organizations using uh, extreme, disproportionate, unnecessary violence in pursuit of their political objectives. That's methods extremism. That's a, that's a, real, that's a real thing. Um, what about the extremist mindset? Is that something real? 
Well, yes, in the sense that there actually are people who have these psychological features. I don't think these features are a figment of my, of my imagination. I mean, they're very easily identifiable. And I just want to say that for me, the extremist mindset is a matter of degree. I'm not saying this is an all or nothing classification. Okay, so one thing that is actually just a piece of self-therapy, right? If you're worried about whether you are tending towards mindset extremism, is to ask yourself whether, which of these um, elements you, you can detect in yourself. Um, okay, so, so that's my answer to the question, is extremism something real? I mean, I think it is real, right, in the senses that I've um, outlined. Okay, so now I want to look at the, the, in a way, the most controversial question, which is, why not extremism? I mean, what's wrong with it? So I gave you those quotations earlier on from various people who were trying to say that extremism is something that we should take seriously. Uh, and here's a very, very famous quotation from Martin Luther King Jr., uh, where he, said, he says, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? So there you see a really clear uh, statement of the view that there's good extremism and there's bad extremism. And one thing that, one example that gets discussed a lot in this context, and I want to just talk about this a little bit because I think it, it, it is quite revealing, is the example of the so-called radical abolitionists in the United States in the 19th century. So the radical abolitionists were people who were campaigning for the abolition of slavery. And they were called radical abolitionists because they were completely uncompromising in their pursuit of the ending of slavery. They thought slavery had to end immediately and slave owners should not be compensated. Now, one thing that people have pointed out is a political scientist called Joel Olson who's pointed out that the abolitionists actually thought of themselves as extremists. They thought of themselves as fanatics. So isn't this exactly the sort of thing that Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about? They were extremists, all right, but they were extremists for the extension of justice. Okay, so, so this is a description of the case that, that, that is, 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 is on offer. I think we should reject that description. I don't think they were extremists, and I think it's actually rather, it is rather revealing why they, why they weren't extremists. Right? So the first thing to say is that the abolitionists did not employ extreme methods in pursuit of their objectives. They did not use violence. I mean, there were one or two exceptions, but they didn't use violence. I mean, the method that they actually used, the famous method, is that they would go, they would go to church services, right? and in the middle of the church service, they would stand up and make a speech attacking slavery. And what typically happened to them is that they were lifted bodily by other uh, worshippers and literally flung out of the door. And some of these characters st stood up, went back into the church, and resumed their lecture. Now, whatever you, th whatever you think about that, I mean, it seems quite brave to me, um, that does not strike me as someone employing extreme methods in pursuit of their political objectives. So they were not violent. So the idea that the radical abolitionists were extremists in the method sense seems to me to be a mistake. I think they, it's, it's also a mistake to think that they were extremists in the psychological sense. If you look at the, 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 the writings and speeches of the, certainly the prominent radical abolitionists, there's very little evidence of a preoccupation with purity. I mean, they were preoccupied with victimhood, but not their victimhood. They were preoccupied with the victimhood of, of the enslaved. And they were preoccupied with the victimhood of the enslaved because the enslaved were victims. Right? 
Um, so this is nothing like the incel case, fantasies of uh, victimhood. I mean, the only case you could make for saying that the abolitionists were extremists was to say, well, abolitionism was an extremist ideology by the, by the standards of, the, of, the, of their day. I give you that. I give you that. Okay, but of course, what they were after is certainly not extremist by our standards. What they were after was the abolition of slavery. So, so I think that apart from that last little qualification, I think there are actually very good reasons for not classifying the radical abolitionists as extremists. Um, what they were, I think, was political radicals. And, and, and what I want to suggest is that, is that there are very good reasons for distinguishing between extremism and radicalism. And I think that this is, I'm not really making a philosophical point here. I, I, what I'm saying is, is, that, is that we need to allow for the possibility of political protest of a nonviolent form that nevertheless challenges accepted assumptions. Um, so, so here's a characterization of what I call radicalism. So radicals are typically what they want is some fundamental change, and they want it now. Okay, so here's a classic statement of radicalism. Greta Thunberg, the young climate change activist, everything needs to change and it needs to change now. There you have a kind of classic statement of the two tenets, the two tenets of radicalism. Radicals, as I understand them, do not see all compromise as rotten. They only see rotten compromises as rotten. Um, they might endorse the use of extra institutional means of advancing their political objectives. So in the UK at the moment, I mean, so one of the things that's happening that's causing a lot of aggravation is climate change activists are simply sitting on some of the highways and blocking the traffic. Now, as you can imagine, this causes great irritation to drivers. Um, well, so they're using an extra institutional, perhaps illegal, for all I know, means of making a political point, but they're not resorting to violence. Um, the other thing that radicals, I think, have in common is that they, they, they question assumptions that are usually unquestioned. Right? So they are radical in that, in that sense. They're, they're offering us new ways of thinking. Right? That's, what they, that's what their radicalism consists in. Now, you may accept what they're offering, or you may think that they're mistaken. Okay, so I'm not endorsing uh, the, the folks who are sitting on the, on, on, the, on the motorways in the UK blocking the traffic, nor am I endorsing all those young folk who are throwing paint over works of art, right? I mean, but nevertheless, these are forms of political protest that do not in and of themselves make these people extremists. I mean, it makes them political radicals. And I think one of the difficulties with not recognizing a distinction between radicalism and extremism is that you end up then classifying all political radicals as extremists. So if you have, for example, legal sanctions against extremists and you say that all radicals are extremists, then effectively you, you, you make it the case that all, all protest that is outside the norms of the status quo then becomes extremist. Right? And, and I think that it, in society we need to allow for the possibility that there are people who, for whatever reason, want fundamental radical change, but they do not want to use violence. They do not want to use violence. And these are the people that I call radicals. Okay. So, um, so extremism and radicalism, and there's a lot of confusion that's caused by this. Think of the word radicalization. So radicalization is 
generally defined as the process of becoming an extremist. Okay, but actually, if you think of the word, it should be the process of becoming a radical, right? Okay, so, 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 um, so what I've been suggesting is that, is, that, is that we shouldn't accept that extremism um, is a good thing. I mean, the thing that lots of people say is that, well, you know, extremism in the form of the abolitionists or the suffragettes, extremism has been the key to human progress. I want to say, no, it hasn't been the key to human progress. The key to human progress has certainly been people who have been politically radical. There haven't been extremists in any, in any of the most important sense of extremists. Okay, so what should we say to the idea that extremism is a good thing? I think we should follow the advice of uh, Nancy Reagan and just, just say no. That's it. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.